Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. By the seventh day God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. This is a really awesome passage of scripture. It really sums up all of chapter one. Uh, It probably should have been a part of chapter one. Uh, One thing we need to remember when we look at the scripture is that the numbers came after the words. The words were inspired and given by God, and then later groups of men put these together and they broke it up into numbers chapters and verses because um, it made it easier for us to be able to reference things. We were able to actually say, please go to chapter 2, verse 1. But sometimes when they put these in there, you can tell based on the grammatical structure that we probably shouldn't stop reading. I know it is a habit of mine. Sometimes when I'm doing my quiet times, I'll read a section of scripture. I might even read a chapter. And when I get to the end of the chapter, sometimes I close my book and I think about what I just read. But sometimes it's really good to just take a quick skim of the first few verses of the next chapter because a lot of times they go really well with what you just read. And so in this particular case, chapter 2 is still right there in with chapter 1 and everything that it belongs with. Chapter 1 sums up the days of creation and all the work that God had done. Six days God created everything. And the seventh day... God rested. Um, One thing I'd like you guys to notice in chapter 2 is that there are three times that he mentions the word seventh. He says, "Thus Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. By the seventh day God completed his work. So he says, on the seventh day God completed. And then he says, and on the seventh day God rested. And then later he says, on the seventh day God blessed and sanctified that day. Each one of those things are extremely significant. And I wanted to start by just pointing out this truth that God completed his work on the seventh day. The first truth that I'd like to talk about, God completed his work on the seventh day and will complete his work with us. That is extremely important. This idea of completion is extremely important. You know that the way we view the world affects the way that we view people. Adam has been talking about this for the past several weeks as he's worked through Genesis chapter 1. He's really emphasized the fact that the way we view the creation of the world and how God put us together, or whether or not we believe that, makes a difference as to how we treat the people around us, how we live in this world that we live in. It affects everything from our education to the way we lead our families In this particular case, I feel like the word completed sums this up in a very, very powerful way. Because if we believe that the world was not completed by God, then we have to choose another method by which to explain how we are the way we are today. And it will affect the way we treat people. For instance, the colors of skin. That's why I showed you guys that video about the melanin potential that we have within our genetic structure. God's created each one of us with DNA, with chromosomes and genetics and all of that information that makes up who we are, our skin color, our eye color, and our height, uh, the kind of hair that we have. All of that is, made, is defined by our genetic structure that God put together for us. But 
how we view that will make a difference as to how we view people. Obviously, race is a very touchy issue in not just America, but the entire world. Uh, the idea of, the, well, the color of skin has really just thrown people off. And uh, a lot of it, I think, has to do with the way we view the beginning of all things. If we were to look at Scripture, exactly what God says, then it would change the way we view people. If we were to see and believe that God created mankind and all of us are descendants of Noah and Adam and Eve, then we are all, according to Scripture, one race, different people groups, simply different shades of brown meaning that we are all created in the image of God and equally valued by God in all of creation. If we were to view people that way, that would change the way we, if we treated the people around us and the way we handled situations that involve people of different nationalities, people groups, or even different skin colors. We struggle with that in our society, and I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that we view people through an evolutionary perspective, through the lens of evolution instead of the lens of the Bible. For instance, evolution, if we believe that, for instance, if we believe that we are completed according to Scripture, that implies that we're all one race, different people groups, different shades of brown, we all reflect God's image, but if we look at people as though we've all evolved, that implies that we're all different races of differing value. Animals that act like animals, some of us more evolved than the others. This explains why there's so much conflict between people groups in our societies. We've adopted this idea that some of us may, by chance, be more advanced than others. This is a proponent. This is something that has been ingrained in us largely through the theory of evolution. This is something, this is why I believe that in chapter 2, verse 1, God sums it up really well, and I think he's trying to clinch the nail for us in understanding that it is he who created us, it is he who made us, it is he who established us, and he finished this work for us. Now, there's a question, you know, is the, is the creation complete or incomplete? Evolution would say creation is incomplete. In fact, they wouldn't say it's creation at all. We're just products of a natural process, a series of gen- random chance genetical, genetic mutations over a series of billions of years, natural process. And so, of course, it's not complete, and we are continuing to evolve and change over a series of time. But if you were to study the human body and you were to study genetics and you were to study DNA, you would learn that there are things about our DNA that imply and indicate that we have been completed. There's a structure about us that implies that a completeness that cannot be taken apart. One concept that Adam mentioned a few weeks ago is the concept of irreducible complexity. It's a big word. You don't have to remember it. But basically it means that an organism cannot be reduced to anything less than it is or it will cease to be a functioning organism. For instance, DNA. You remove enough pieces of the DNA and make it less than what it is, then it will cease to function as a functional strain of DNA, which means that every aspect of that strand of DNA in our body has to be present at one moment in order for it to function at all. In order for it to evolve over a long process of time is theoretically, mathematically impossible. In fact, the, 
if you were to study math and you were to work on this, this is a number that I have a really hard time understanding. The, the odds of having one random chance good mutation is one to 10 to the 600th power. And I don't really understand that number, but basically that's one with a comma and 600 zeros behind it. I don't know how to say that other than one and uh, 10 to the 600th power. But that's the, your odds of having one good random chance mutation. And according to evolution, the theory of evolution, we are a series of millions and billions of good random chance mutations. Uh, you have a better chance of winning the lottery ten times in a row than you have of um, becoming something like this, like you are, through a series of random chance mutations. Some really cool things about DNA. Here's something interesting. If all the DNA in your body were placed end to end, it would stretch from here to the moon over 100,000 times. If all this very densely coded information were placed in typewritten form, it would completely fill the Grand Canyon 40 times. Yet all of our DNA would not fill two teaspoons. And then if you were to look at chromosomes and genes, this is really interesting stuff. Each of us has a unique set of chemical blueprints affecting how our body looks and functions. These blueprints are contained in our DNA, long spiral-shaped molecules found inside every cell. Scientists believe that human DNA carries about 25,000 protein-coding genes. Each gene may be thought of as a recipe you'd find in a cookbook. Some are recipes for creating physical features like brown eyes or curly hair. Other recipes tell the body how to produce important chemicals. Along the segments of our DNA, genes are neatly packaged within structures called chromosomes. Every human cell contains 46 chromosomes arranged as 23 pairs with one member of each pair inherited from each parent at the time of conception. Meaning at the time of conception, all of the information necessary to determine your hair color, your eye color, your height, many things about who you are were present at the moment of conception when the genes and the DNA were shared between the mother and the father. The moment of conception, you were completed. And you go back to Scripture and you find support that says in Psalms chapter 139, he says that we were we were formed in our mother's wombs, knit together. And he knew us before the foundation of the world. And he numbered our days. We are completed in God. But there's a question. Is God done creating? If we look at Scripture, we look at the definition that God uses to, for each day of creation. When he creates the plants, he says those he created them after their kind. When he created the animals, he created them after their kind. When he created man, he created us after our kind. And then the reproduction that God commanded following the six days of creation never crossed kinds. And you can't find any archaeological um, evidence whatsoever to indicate a crossing of kinds. That would be considered the missing link where one kind crossed to another kind. There is no evidence to support the crossing of kinds. So basically, from the six days of creation, we have reproduced as humanity and creation, but we have not brought anything brand new into this world other than the soul of life that God has breathed into each one of us. So there's some pretty neat themes in Scripture that I see about God completing His work, which I think are pretty interesting. But before I get into that, I'd like to touch one more time on uh, the idea of um, the skin colors and the, and the race because it's very interesting to see how 
knowing that we've been completed affects our society or believing that we're still changing affects our society. For instance, Charles Darwin's book was actually titled On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection. It's usually just titled Origin of Species. If you were to go look it up in the bookstore, that's what you'd probably see. But his, his original book, which you can download for free online, uh, is titled On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. That's how his book was titled. And Charles Darwin uh, was not the only one to promote this theory. There were many others. Frederick Nietzsche wrote a book called Thus Spoke Zarathustra. It's a really strange title, but he spoke in his book about a term called the Ubermensch, which is a German word for the Superman. It's kind kind of a cool concept, right? You know, we really, I love... The superheroes. I love watching the superhero movies and uh, getting into, you know, Batman inspired me many times. And, uh, you know, I've I really kind of always wanted to be Batman growing up. And so uh, this is really kind of a cool, you know, I still enjoy all of that. But it's really interesting concept because he believed, uh, Nietzsche believed in this idea. Number one, he believed that he stated very openly that God is dead. And that became a big deal. Um, and he also created this concept of the Ubermensch in that through the series of natural selection and the naturally selecting out of the unfavored races that we could eventually achieve a race of supermen. Now, this is very important because a guy named Adolf Hitler Hitler read um, and was very influenced by Darwin's book as well as Friedrich Nietzsche's book as well as a book about the Aryan race. And uh, he began his quest to create and genetically produce the Ubermensch, the Superman. And uh, he set out on this journey to accomplish this process. You're seeing how this concept of evolution is affecting society and the lives of the world around him. And you see how lives were were treated by these people because of their belief system. Margaret Sanger, after uh, being influenced by Darwin and other evolutionist thinkers, she became an evolutionist. Uh, She organized Planned Parenthood to promote abortions and abstinence among the lower classes. The counselors among in Planned Parenthood are salesmen, and they work off of commission. They teach sex education in schools, uh, and the purpose was uh, designed to break down the barriers of modesty starting in kindergarten, um, and because uh, they believe that more sex equals more abortions equals more money, and uh, originally it was designed to aid in the process of naturally selecting out the unfavored races. Obviously, uh, Planned Parenthood is one of the major reasons uh, that abortion, major contributors to abortion in the United States of America today. They are in our public schools. They are teaching sex education starting in kindergarten. And uh, they do have as part of their plan a desire to um, break down the barriers of modesty in the the lives of the children. It's interesting research. I encourage you to go research it for yourselves. um, And uh, you'll find some interesting things about the organization. John Dewey, the father of modern education, uh, he was an evolutionist. He signed what was called the Humanist Manifesto in 1933. Um, uh, that's a long time ago. But the people who signed that manifesto, was a, it was a document that stated this is how we are going to view our society and this is how we are going to direct our society as leaders and as influencers in the United States of America And these are five, this is a summary in about five points of what this document was about. One, atheism, there is no God. Two, evolution, all mankind is a product of natural process. Three, 
all morality. There is no God, so no law. Man is free to make his own choices. Number four, man is inherently good. If man is good by nature, he stays that way. And we know, according to Scripture, God says there is no, none good, no, not one. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And uh, we've all uh, gone our own way. And socialism, man must be God, so man must get together and form right and wrong. So they had several methods and means by which they accomplished this. One was public education. Two was to remove religious influence in the public square. Three was to teach evolution as fact. Four was to teach that values are personal, not biblical, and uh, from one sovereign source. And another one was to teach that collective social wisdom is God. Now, in 1933, that did not define the United States of America. America did not look like that in 1933. But in 2015... America looks like that. Our, the way we view creation and the world around us affects how we treat people and how we lead our lives and how we lead our families and how we lead our societies. If we do not view creation as completed by God, then we must turn to some other method and these are the consequences of turning to any other method other than God as the creator and completer of the universe. There's some really interesting uh, scriptures that talk about God being the creator and what he does to continue the work that he started in each one of us. In Isaiah chapter 64, verse 8, he says, But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are our potter. All of us are the work of your hand. Meaning that, yes, God has completed his creation, but he is not absent from us. He is very present with us. And he says that we are like soft pottery in soft clay in the hands of our God. And he continues this work of molding and shaping us into what he wants us to be, which is an awesome presence of God in our lives. Another work of completion that God did in our lives we see as thematic throughout scripture is the work of redemption. We know, unfortunately, it doesn't take long for man to step outside of the boundaries of God. We see in chapter 3 that uh, Pastor Adam's going to dive into that when he gets back, the fall of mankind and uh, Adam and Eve and their sin. And you see that because of their sin, the world was corrupted. And we, because of their curse, have all been born into sin. And from that point forward, all of creation begins to seemingly unravel. And corruption just spreads throughout our planet. And from generation to generation, and you read the book of Kings, the books of Kings and the books of Chronicles, you see that king after king after king did worse than the first. They always did worse than the guy that came before them. And so goes the story into the 21st century. Corruption spreads. And the great awesome thing about Scripture is that it doesn't just teach us the theme of corruption. It teaches us the theme of redemption that God did complete. If you were to read In John chapter 19, verse 30, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he says, Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. And I don't know about you, but those words are some of the most powerful words in all of Scripture. It is finished. That means completed. That means done. That means the work of redemption is completed. Now, there is a word spoken in Scripture. It's it's called propitiation. It's a big word. It's a huge word. It's kind of hard to remember, but this is basically what it means. The turning away of God's wrath. Ultimately, what that means is that God is a God of grace, and God is a God of love, and God is a God of mercy, but God is also a God of justice, and God is also a God of wrath, and he hates sin. 
And as long as I am cursed and I am born in sin, I am staring down the barrel of God's wrath. And I have no hope and I have no peace as long as I am looking into the wrath of God. And the great thing about propitiation, the turning away of God's wrath, is it is a work that was completed by Jesus Christ on the cross when he said it is finished. That's what he means. This was a moment in time when the skies grew dark around Jesus as he was on the cross and he cried out to his father, Father, why have you forsaken me? And it is because at that moment in time, all of the sin of mankind was on the Son of God on that cross and all of the wrath of God was turned away from us and onto him on that cross. It was the turning away of God's wrath from me and onto Jesus Christ. You see, God is a just God. He doesn't just make sin go away. And the punishment for sin doesn't just go away. It still had to be paid. Somebody had to take the full wrath of God. We either all take it ourselves or the Son of God takes it. And so Jesus spoke it on the cross. It is finished. He completed this work not only of redeeming us and turning away the wrath of God, but recreating us into new beings. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. We have hope of being recreated spiritually in Christ Jesus by putting our faith in Jesus Christ, by trusting in the words, it is finished. Now, if I do not believe that God is a God who completes then I will struggle with my faith from now until I die. And I do sometimes. Because there are some days when my sin is very present to me. There are some days when I can't get around the fact that I feel guilty and I see my guilt more clearly than anybody else does. And sometimes it's hard for me to believe and trust and remember that when Jesus said it is finished on the cross, he meant it. He finished paying for my sin and I can trust that it is done away with and that I am justified. That is, a, that is a concept that affects our faith. It affects the way I live my life. You know, there are some days that I struggle and there are some days that I do well. It affects my obedience. Some days I feel like maybe God doesn't want to hear from me and I hesitate to even pray because I feel so guilty. I feel so ashamed. Even as a Christian and I know that I've failed. I've done wrong. And I think God must be so angry with me. But then Christ and the Holy Spirit speaking in my heart reminds me of these words of Jesus on the cross when he said, it is finished. And he completed the work of my redemption, my salvation, fully turning away the wrath of God, meaning that God is not angry with me anymore that's why Paul said there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's why he said that we can boldly come before the throne of God because of the redemption of Jesus Christ. Not because I deserve it, not because I'm not guilty, but because Jesus turned the wrath of God away from me, created me anew, and has redeemed my life. So God is a God who finishes his work, and God finished the work of equipping us to do good. In uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, he says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. 
One other thing that I really struggle with sometimes is that I believe that, you know, God's called me to do a lot of good works in life. In Ephesians, he says, for by grace we are saved through faith and not of ourselves, the gift of God so that no one will boast. And then later he says that God has created for each one of us good works that he wants us to accomplish in this world, not so that we can be saved, but so that we can honor him and glorify him as objects of his worship. He's created these good works for us, and I know God has a calling for my life. I know God has called me out. He's, he's given me a family, and I know he's called me to honor that responsibility by being a good, a good husband, a good father, a good dad to those kids and to be a good leader. He's given me a ministry. He's called me to be responsible to that. He's given me other practical responsibilities. God has said, you know, uh, a man who does not provide for his family is worse than an infidel. That can hang over my head pretty heavy some days. And uh, so I know these are some things that God has called me to do in life. He's called me to go out and share the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people in the world that are lost. He's called me to be missional and all these kinds of things. And so sometimes I think that maybe I'm not equipped to accomplish all this. There are some days I lay in bed at night and I feel I see all my failures that day and I think maybe I'm not cut out for all that I'm doing right now. And uh, God reminds me that he's equipped me with everything that I need to accomplish the good works that he's called me to accomplish. And this is the tool with which he's given me to accomplish those tasks. The word of God, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, it pierces the deepest part of my heart. And it lays me open, it exposes my sin, it changes me, and it equips me, and it empowers me, and he uses it to defend me so that I can accomplish the good works he's called me to do. So this is the idea of completion in Scripture. So he's molding us, he's shaping us, he's created us, he's recreated us, he's equipped us, he has fully completed this work to accomplish everything he desires to accomplish in us and through us. Another aspect that I see is that, uh, this is a Scripture that I feel like is kind of my favorite in this section here. Um, Philippians 1.6, one of the most encouraging. He says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. There's some days I think that um, I'm not going to make it. You know, I think, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a young man. I got a long, long ways to go. And I think of where I was 20 years ago, you know, my relationship with the Lord and, uh, you know, the mistakes I was making then, the mistakes I'm making now. And I think, oh, my goodness, I got a lot of years in front of me. I'm not sure I'm going to make it. You know, what's going to happen if I don't, you know, pull this off? And, uh, and I think that, you know, I don't, I don't have an, what it takes. And I am reminded by the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And he brings me back to this passage of Scripture where he says that uh, he who b- began a good work in me will complete it and will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And he reminds me that I am in his hand. I am his creation. He is taking care of me. He is holding me and he's not going to let me go. And I feel like the power behind that is followed up in the rest of this verse. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts, verse 2, by the seventh day God had completed his work which he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. The second truth is that God rested from his work on the seventh day and commands our weekly rest as a reminder that he is God. Now I feel like this is a little bit different than what he says next in blessing and sanctifying it. This is actually a physical, literal rest that God takes on the seventh day. And there's some interesting concepts about this. Uh, the word Sabbath means to cease. Um, but he doesn't mention the Sabbath in this passage of Scripture. He mentions seven, the number seven. 
Um, but later in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, this passage is repeated. Uh, in Exodus 20, which is the Ten Commandments, he says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And he said, Sabbath day. Six days you shall labor and do your work, but the seventh day, so there he says the seventh day, so we know these are the same. The Sabbath day and the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your, me- your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. In the Ten Commandments, God commands us to honor and remember and keep the Sabbath day, uh, the seventh day, and make it holy to God. He says to rest just like God rested. But right here in Genesis chapter 2, he mentions the word seventh. And we see that it is a literal day just like all the other ones. Uh, Adam pointed out that the Hebrew word for day is yom, Y-O-M. Uh, It's a Hebrew word that in most cases in Scripture refers to a 24-hour period of time, and every time that it's preceded by a number is a 24-hour period of time. And in this particular case, the number that precedes it is the number seven, meaning that it's a 24-hour period of time. So there is a very literal hour, or there is a very literal day in a seven-day process that God is talking about resting on and commands us to rest on. So the question comes for me, which day is that? And we go back and look through history, and it's really kind of hard to discern. In fact, um, the days of the week that we have, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, are actually not Hebrew words. You can't trace those back to the Hebrew language or the people of Israel. Those names that we have for the days of the week come from uh, the Romans and uh, the names for the planets, and they come from the Greeks and the names of some of the Greek gods. Uh, The sun, Sunday, um, the, uh, the moon, Monday, uh, Thursday, Thursday, um, uh, and one of the days is for Odin, the, his father. Uh, and so some Greek gods, some Greek mythology, and some, some Roman names for some planets, and uh, we have the names of our seven days. But a seven-day rotation has been consistent in societies throughout the history of the world. Different names have gone by these, so the question is, which one is the Sabbath day? And it's really kind of hard to nail down. If you were to take a journey throughout the world you would find out that cultures and countries all around the world celebrate the Sabbath day on different days of the week. We have chosen in the United States of America, well, uh, most of churches in the United States of America have chosen Sunday to celebrate the Sabbath day on. And some of that is a tradition that goes all the way back to the early church following the resurrection of Jesus Christ where they decided to celebrate the Sabbath day on the day of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There are some churches in the United States of America that still um, they believe that, man, if you don't celebrate the Sabbath on Saturday, you're probably going to hell. All right, and so there's, you know, there's other, uh, there's other organizations, other beliefs that believe the same things very passionately about this. Um, there are uh, countries in the world that celebrate the Sabbath on Monday, countries that celebrate it on Tuesday, countries that celebrate it on Wednesday, every single day of the week. You could be at work on Wednesday and you know there's a country in the world somewhere that has officially established that as their Sabbath day and they're celebrating it. So which one is the Sabbath day is kind of hard to nail down, but what I do find to be incredibly important is what happens on the seventh day. It is a literal day of rest. A literal day of rest. Uh, In Scripture, we see several Scriptures. In Leviticus chapter 25, verse 1, he says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I shall give you, then the land you shall have a Sabbath 
Then the land shall have a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its crops. So he talks about a seventh year rest for the land. He says, I'm instituting a seventh year rest for all the land that you have. And then you go through Scripture and you find that there's a, there's a seventh day of the week that he wants us to rest on, a physical rest for individual people and for the people, our children and our families and the people who work for us. But then in Exodus chapter 23, 12, you see that he says, six days you are to do your work, but on the seventh day you shall cease from labor so that your ox and your donkey may rest and the son of your female slave as well as your stranger may refresh themselves. Rest was for the purpose of physical refreshment as well as um, some of these other means. Now, for some reason, we have a really hard time taking from God a command to rest. You know, of all the commands that we work really hard at instituting in our lives, this one is, seems to be a very difficult one for us to accomplish. How many doctors have told us you need to rest? How many wives, husbands, have have told you you need to slow down, you need to rest, you need to stop doing so much, or maybe some of them are telling you to get moving. But anyways, um, uh, uh, I think that resting is difficult for us. Uh, we have a hard time setting us, we have this endless list of things that have to be done in our head. I always do. And uh, it, it's a burden. Some of those things are responsibilities that I know that if I don't get done, I'm going to pay the price for in some way, shape, or form. And it's going to hurt somebody or somebody's going to be disappointed in me, and I have a hard time setting that side of time and actually putting it all aside and actually resting and allowing myself to be refreshed. So there's an aspect of the Sabbath day where God says, I am building into your DNA a need for rest, and I'm building into who you are a need for rest, and I'm instituting in you a command to actually take that rest and be refreshed. This is part of God's plan for who we are and the way that he's designed us. But there's something else interesting about this. Sabbath is also a sign of God's covenant. In Exodus 31, 13, he says, But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall surely observe my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. It was a sign to everybody else around you. You you know, if we were to take one day out of every week regularly and establish it as a Sabbath given to our Lord, it is a sign to everybody else in our life, our children, our wives, our co-workers, our employers, our enemies, our friends. It is a constant reminder that we are in a covenant relationship with the creator of the world because it is modeled after the creation of the universe. It is set on the seventh day of creation. This is something that God established. It is a constant reminder to everybody else in the world from you that you're in a covenant relationship with God. He set this up to be a sign to set his people apart from everybody else in the world. So, it is a literal day. But then the last truth that I wanted to cover is that God blessed and sanctified the seventh day and commands that we set it apart for him. He blessed and sanctified the seventh day and he commands that we set it apart for him, not for ourselves. Now, one aspect that I, I didn't cover that um, is really powerful to me is from Hebrews chapter 4. He says that the one who's entered his rest has himself also rested from his work as God did for the one who has entered his rest has himself also... Oh, I'm reading twice. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. Basically, this scripture refers to entering the eternal rest. It is a Sabbath rest that God called 
Basically, he sums up our short lives into the six work days. And he says, one day there's going to come a day where we go from this life to the next and we stop all of our work and all the good works that God's called us to do and we enter into his eternal rest. This is something that we get to look forward to. But this last truth is that God commands, he blessed and sanctified it. Now this, to me, brings in the power of why it's so important. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, it says, Then God blessed the seventh day, sanctified it because he rested from all his work which he had created and made. This is a distinct distinct separation from this day and all the other days. He called it holy. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that all the other six days are permission to live unholy lives and dedicate one day out of the week to live holy lives. But he said this is a very special day that is to be holy and set apart just for him. So there's different ways that we treat this. And this is what I want to kind of point out to you guys as we wrap it up this morning. Uh, One is that uh, we use the donkey in the ditch excuse a lot. And Jesus used that. He said there is a case where we need to be, uh, we need to use grace. You know, if my neighbor has his animal in the ditch and I say, well, it's the Sabbath day. I'm sorry, buddy. I can't help you out. And, uh, you know, maybe if the animal's not dead tomorrow, I'll help you tomorrow. And uh, uh, Jesus says this is a case where we would say, you know, it's good for us to show mercy and love to our neighbors. He wants us to love the Lord our God as, with all of our hearts, our soul, our minds, and strength, but he wants us to love our neighbors as much as we love ourselves as well. So there's an element of grace there Jesus brings in. But I think sometimes we use this as an excuse. We, we kind of, it, it ceases to be a good excuse when we put our donkey in the ditch on purpose week after week after week. You know, when we constantly load up our seven days with things that we have to do and we say we have to do them, we have to get them done, and, well, you know, donkey's in the ditch, you know, but when you're saying a day, week after week after week, I think at some point God's going, okay, wait a minute, you know, uh, this fails to be a good excuse. And another way we treat it is that uh, we treat the Sabbath day as an excuse to other people. We basically, uh, we tell people that we gave it to God so that we can get them off our back so that we can have that day to do whatever we want for ourselves. Uh, in the Old Testament, the priests were doing this. They would say they gave something to the Lord as an offering to God so that no one would require them to give it to the poor. But then they would turn around and use it for their own selfish purposes. And then they would say, well, I gave it to God. You know, and, uh, and so God, was, there was a word that they used in Hebrew. Um, it was the word korban, which is a Hebrew word for an offering to God, which is a good thing. But it became abused. And it became something that, uh, that the people use for selfish purposes. And I think oftentimes the seventh day of the week, the Sabbath day, whichever day we might set aside to be our day of rest can always easily become something that's all about ourselves. Here's another, here's some ways we can look at it. We can waste six work days on mundane obligations that we have to get done and work and all those things that we have to do on our daily grind. And then we can try to cram all the good works that God's called us to to do in one day and call it the Sabbath day. All the good things. God wants me to share the gospel. I'm going to do that on Sunday. God wants me to work on my relationship with him and become a better Christian. I'm going to do that on Sunday. God wants me to to love the body of Christ, which is a biblical command. Well, I'm going to do all that on Sunday. God wants me to to honor my family and work on my family and be a better husband. I'm going to work on that on Sunday. And then all the rest of the days of the week is all about something else. And then we try to do all the good works of God on the one day. And that's why we're having a hard time giving God what he deserves on one day because we're trying to do too much on the one day that God deserves. The other way of looking at it is that we worship six work days 
and then we give one day just to God, which would look something like this. We take our responsibility to our families. We know God wants us as men to be responsible husbands and to take care of our families, honor that commitment. We got six solid work days to make that a good relationship. We've, we know that we've got the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to get out into the world. We've got six solid work days. We need to get the gospel of Jesus Christ out of the world. We've got our natural responsibilities, our employers, our, our jobs. We've got to get that stuff done. We've got six solid work days to get that done. But then somewhere along the lines, if we were to pour all that in and do the good works that God has called us to do and be diligent about those things as an act of worship, then one day of the week we could actually stop everything that we're doing and say, God, this day is yours day is yours. It's not going to be about me. It's not going to be about other people. It's not going to be about my kids or my family. It's going to be about me and you because I know that I am created as an object of worship that you desire. And for one day, I am going to personally sing your praises. I'm not going to ask for anything. I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to sing your praises for a day. But I think we find it hard to do that because we don't feel like we've accomplished enough in the other six days. Now, here's one thing that I think is really important. When we rest one day out of the week, or when you, if I was a farmer and I had an investment in my machinery and in my crops and in my fields, and I chose to rest an entire year, I would have, I would have to choose to trust God fully to provide for me and my family for that year. Basically, I have to make a conscious choice to say, I don't know how this is going to work. I can't afford to do this. But I am going to choose to trust you because you own this land. I'm just a tenant. It's in your hands. You're in control. You own my resources. You own my time. You own my family. You own my kids. You own my job. You own me. So for me to stop and take a day of rest once every seven days is a calling from God, a literal rotation of every seven days taking a rest some way, shape, or form. If I was to do that, it requires me to trust in the Lord and recognize again that He is my creator, He is my completer, He is the one who sustained me, He is the God who is holding me together. And I think one thing, one reason that I struggle with the Sabbath day is because I feel like if I put it all down, it's all going to fall apart because I'm the one holding it all together, because I'm the one that's going to make it all happen, because I'm the one that everybody's relying on. So if I stop, everything falls to pieces. And I don't know if you can see, but when we start thinking that way, we remove God from his position as the creator and the sustainer and the completer of our days. So God completed his work by the seventh day, God rested from his work on the seventh day and God blessed and sanctified the seventh day. So the question we might need to ask ourselves is how are we responding to God, our creator, our sustainer, our completer? In Psalms 33, verse six, he says, but by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. 
This is why he created us and the world, not so that we can get all wrapped up in our responsibilities and our obligations and our ambitions, but so that we would stand in awe of him and fear him as God. I invite you to stand and pray with me as we pray that God would lead us to honor his Sabbath day and keep it holy. I invite you to just pray about your life and how you view the world around you, the people around you, and the Sabbath day that he set apart for himself. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day and for these people, the body of Christ. I pray that your name would be glorified. Thank you for changing us and for molding us and shaping us into your image, for completing the work of salvation in our lives. Lord, I pray if there's a lost person in this room that they would cry out to you for salvation, that they would beg you to turn away the wrath of God so that they could know your forgiveness and know your salvation and know your life and the completion of hope. God, I pray for the body of Christ that we would honor you and not get so wrapped up in all the stuff that we have to do, but we'd be diligent and responsible and work hard at worshiping you. But God, I pray that we would make sure that somehow we dedicate time to revere you and honor you and worship you from this life that you created. Thank you for creating us and completing us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. With a few minutes we have, you're welcome to come and pray at the altar. Um, just seek the face of the Lord. Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you. Use the Contact Us link on our website at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.